This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. I did want to get to this case, though, because I, I do think this deserves some attention here. Uh, and, and what happened to a former principal, a well-known educator in Ontario, who was involved in, in a lawsuit with the Toronto District School Board, and as we learned in recent days, uh, has taken his own life. And so any kind of a situation that results in an outcome like that is one that we should try to better understand. Uh, now, this concerns uh, an educator by the name of Richard Bilsko. Uh, Richard ended his life on July 13th. And we learned that through a, a statement from the family. In fact, it was interesting. It was a clip of him earlier this month uh, in a, a panel discussion on TVO in Ontario talking about education, talking about merit and equity in education. It was something that he cared deeply about. Both equity and merit, rewarding merits, but also encouraging equity in healthcare, or rather in, in the education system, that is. He was a part of a, a, a diversity workshop, diversity education and inclusion, DEI as it's known, uh, that occurred in April of 2021. And the lawsuit arose from that, and what he ve- viewed as bullying and harassment directed at him, or the accusation that he was a racist and a white supremacist. And and so that's quite a burden to bear. And in in the end, it seems as though maybe it was it was too much for him. So what does this case matter? What do we need to to learn from this? Well, Jonathan Kay is uh, an editor and podcast host at Colette, Colette.com, where he's got a really interesting write up uh, on this whole story. And he joins us on the line here this afternoon. Uh, Jonathan, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, so what stands out to you about this case and, and why, in, in your view, it's, you know, this whole thing is such a, a concerning mess? So uh, I, I ended up writing about this because I actually knew Richard. Uh, oh, Richard reached out to me in 2021 right after this happened. And we this was during the COVID pandemic. As I wrote in my column for Quillette, I never actually met him. We, we spoke on the phone and corresponded, you know, dozens of times. We probably corresponded hundreds of times. He he had this symposium that he organized for educators who were interested in reform that I, I he had me in as a guest speaker. Um, but I felt like I knew him, even though I'd never met him, just because we, we had all these interactions. Uh, what struck me about the guy was, you know, we're used to these culture war stories where it's like conservatives versus progressives and stuff. This guy was yeah. a progressive. Uh, yeah. He happened He happened to be a gay man. He was 60 years old when he when he committed suicide um, earlier this month, and and you know he's old enough to remember when homophobia was like a big part of Canadian society. Unfortunately, it was like, you know, um, if you were gay, you walked down the street, it was like even in the gay village here in Toronto, you could people could beat you up. Like it, it wasn't uncommon. I mean, it still happens tragically, but um, he has a, he had a historical memory of that, and he was an educator. He worked in an inner city in Buffalo, New York. Um, and he worked at several schools here in Toronto. And so it wasn't like he was, you know, I don't know, Breitbart or like some Fox News guy who was facing off, 
in this DEI session organized mm-hmm. by the Toronto District School Board. He, he's somebody who saw himself as a progressive, liberal-minded guy, and here he was. This is, uh, I think, April 2021. He was in this DEI session, and he was being told about how horrible Canada is, how it's much more racist than the United States. Um, like, all this stuff. And as an educator, he, he, he objected politely. There's a transcript of it, and there's a recording of it. He objected to this third-party consultant who had been brought in. Her name was uh, Mrs. Miss Ojo Thompson. Basically saying, look, I've, I've worked in the United States. I've worked at many schools. Canada is a great country. It's racist. You know, every country has some racism. But, like, are we really going to teach our kids that Canada is this, like, racist hellhole, um, you know, worse than the United States, which had slavery until uh, the Civil War? And, and, and this woman, uh, again, third-party consultant who had been brought in by the Toronto District School Board, uh, just went at him and said that, you know, he was abetting the forces of white supremacy uh, and humiliated him in front of all his peers because dozens of his people he'd worked with for decades were on the Zoom call. You know, all this was a DEI session done by Zoom. And then what's worse is this woman came back for another session. You know, she'd been paid thousands of dollars by the Toronto District School Board for this. And then in the, in the subsequent session, used her abusive treatment of Richard as like a case study in how awesome it is to confront white supremacists and, and, and humiliate them and make them feel, to discomfort them, I think was you know, one of the euphemisms she used. And then, and then when Richard went to school board officials and complained about it, they took the consultant's side and one superintendent even went on Twitter and talked about how amazing it was to see Richard humiliated in this fashion. And she wouldn't take that tweet down for months until Richard's lawyer demanded she do so. And by the way, this woman is now education director at another Ontario school board. Um, so the whole thing was, was so awful. And, you know, I'd spoken to Richard. I knew how um, emotionally frail he'd become as a result of this, you know, to be humiliated in front of people you work with for decades. Um, and then, yeah, so when, when he took his life, it was a horrible thing. Um, and uh, it's people are talking about it as a personal tragedy it is, but also, I think for the first time, there's a lot of people, maybe their eyes are opening to um, not all DEI consultants are grifters. I mean, I think there's DEI consultants doing good work, and I've heard from some of them after I wrote my column because they, they say, hey, look, you know, I work in this industry and not everybody's like this. But at the fringes, you've got these people who, I mean, it's like a cult. And rather than teaching respect and healthy professional relationships, they're, they're modeling the most pathological kinds of behavior and, and, and treating people in a, in, a, in a truly abusive way under the auspices of pretending to teach them about respect and human rights yeah. and such. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, and, and as Richard had said during that meeting, that he didn't think Canada was as racist as the U.S. So it's not like he was denying that, that racism existed. No. Right. It just sort of, you know, re- rejecting a certain premise. And I think maybe there's an opportunity in that that's kind of a setting to unpack that further. Well, let's talk about that. You know, why do we think that? How do we measure these things? And But instead, it went in a very different direction, a direction, I guess, in which, to some extent, Richard was ultimately vindicated, as you note in your piece. So this went before Ontario's Workplace Safety an insurance board, uh, they found that that he was indeed the victim of harassment and bullying. Yeah, well, it went further than that. Uh, as you correctly said, the WSIB uh, concluded that he had been harassed and bullied by this 
um, third-party consultant that the TDSB Toronto District School Board had engaged and had awarded him um, some some financial compensation. It wasn't the money. It was, just, it was the fact that an official body had concluded this, which was important to Richard. But it, what's crazy about this is when Richard then launched his lawsuit against the school board saying, you know, I, I was harassed and bullied and you actually took the side of the harasser and the bullier, the, ter- the school board turned around and then sued the DEI consultants, uh, Ms. Ojo Thompson, suddenly claiming that, oh, no, she went rogue. Uh, they said they sued her for breach of contract um, and, and effectively asked her to indemnify the school board for all the money that they would then have to pay to Richard. And, and so it's among the many crazy subplots in the story is the utter, the utterly cynical nature of the school board that when it was fashionable to do so, they went on Twitter and talked about how amazing it was that, that one of their own principles had been humiliated in this way and, and gaslit as a white supremacist. But then as soon as Richard lawyered up, they turned 180 degrees and said, oh, no, 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 the, the consultants who'd made these claims, which are completely ridiculous, and smeared Richard as, as a white supremacist, no, no, she was, she, she'd gone rogue. Uh, we're suing her. But that wasn't what we asked her to do. But, of course, it was exactly what they asked her to do because it was clear from the school board's reaction to this episode that they were quite happy with what this DEI consultant had done. Um, they were looking for that kind of, of spectacle. And so to me, this isn't just an indictment of one consultant. Uh, it, it's also an indictment of the school board. And by the way, I've interviewed, in the last few days, I've interviewed other clients of this particular um, consultant because she was brought in to provide DEI training for counselors in the, the city of Sarnia, which is a small Ontario city uh, on the, the southern edge of uh, Lake Huron. Uh, and the same thing happened, except this time she picked the wrong guy. And there was a counselor who she started berating in exactly the same way, like white supremacists. And this guy was um, a retired real estate agent, independently wealthy, and he just let this woman have it and say, you know what, I'm not going in for any of this crap, and if you want to call me a racist, you know, screw you. And she, she actually, so Joe Thompson, actually quit in a huff and said, well, you know, I, I feel disrespected and I'm not going to continue with this diversity training. That happened right. in 2022, a year after this thing happened with Richard. And I've heard from others who, who have experienced this. And by the way, not all DEI consultants work like this. But it, it, to me, it speaks volumes that this person, she charged $6,500 for a four-hour DEI court. Can you imagine paying paying six thousand five hundred dollars to be called a racist for four hours? Like nice work if you can get it, right? And and I think this case with Richard, as tragic as it is, um, you know, one slight tiny benefit is that it's raising awareness about the stuff going on under cover of social justice. There's nothing socially just about this. The people making money off this, charging sixty five hundred dollars for four hour Zoom sessions to call everybody racist. I mean, they're, they're some of the most privileged people in Canada, whatever, whatever their skin color. So, I mean, this, 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 is, this has got to stop. I mean, it's, 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 it's cultish. And can anyone identify a single workplace in Canada whose climate would benefit from this kind of ridiculous pseudo-instruction? No, no kidding. 
Well, apparently the Ontario government has ordered a review of, you know, this sort of training that schools are doing uh, and and maybe other provinces will follow suit. I mean, it suggests where, you know, maybe in some cases this this has gone completely off the rails. You know, what what kind of lessons do we need to to learn from this whole tragic situation? Uh, I think the central lesson to me is that no ideology should be beyond question, conservative or, or liberal, and that if you have people being brought into an office or a government agency, um, you know, who are saying, I'm here to teach you about X, if you take one whole area of professional instruction or ideology and say, well, this is beyond debate, this is beyond challenge, um, it, it's only a matter of time until you get a, I, I use the word cultish because that's kind of how cults operate, where it's like they're just things that you cannot question. And, and I think 99% of the time, it's good that we don't, like, obviously racism is terrible, sexism is terrible, homophobia. Like, 99% of the time, I think it's, it's good that we treat those as kind of hallowed things. But at the margins, if somebody comes in and says crazy abusive things under the auspices of teaching you about opposing racism and sexism and homophobia, <laughs> you should be able to say to them, that's crazy, and not be accused of being a white supremacist. Uh, and, and so I think it's a lesson, it's a tragic lesson in, in reminding us that, that ultimately no ideological set of beliefs, um, no set of norms at, at the edges can be beyond question. We always have to be able to debate things and not, as a result, suffer personal attacks and be defamed, as Richard was, uh, yeah. called a white supremacist, merely for doing so. You know, he, he was a progressive guy, a very reasonable person, and... Uh, it was, it, was, it was really tragic what happened to him. Yeah, very much so. As mentioned, your latest, it's up at uh, Quillette.com. Uh, John, thanks so much for making some time for us. We really appreciate this. Oh, thank you. All the best. Uh, Jonathan Kay, uh, writer at Quillette.com, Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E, Quillette.com. An interesting write-up on a really tragic and awful case. And, yeah, let's see maybe if, you know, this prompts uh, a reconsideration on how far this, this pendulum has swung here. top in this hour, I want to delve into what's been going on recently in Montreal. Montreal used to be a real mafia stronghold. The Rizzuto crime family, once known as the Sixth Family, in reference to the five New York crime families, uh, things have changed considerably. And maybe some of the recent violence in Montreal tells part of that story. But there's been some brazen and high-profile attacks in Montreal recently. In fact, just last month, a high-profile member of organized crime in Montreal, Francesco Del Bazo, was shot and killed in uh, Montreal's West Island. Uh, in May, uh, the daughter-in-law of a Montreal Mafia member was killed in a targeted shooting. In March, Leonardo Rizzuto, who had apparently or allegedly took over from his father, uh, Vito Rizzuto, as the Mafia leader of Montreal, was shot but managed to survive. So why is there all of this unrest in Montreal's organized crime scene? It's spilling over into some pretty uh, blatant and brazen violence. Well, someone who's written extensively uh, about all of this, including the book, The Sixth Family, is Adrian Humphreys, who's also a reporter at the National Post. And you can find his latest today at nationalpost.com on what's been going on with these mob wars in Montreal. Adrian, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Great to be back. 
Well, obviously, you know, the uh, Rizzuto crime family is not fighting with itself. So there are other elements uh, at play here in Montreal. Who are the relevant players, first of all? Uh, it, the latest um, snatch of mob violence is really between two different brands of the Italian mafia. Um, there's basically from Italy, in Italy, there's the, the area of Calabria and the region of and the island of Sicily, mm-hmm. both developed their own brand of organized crime, both highly successful, and both came to Canada. And they're, you know, to a lot of Canadians and non-Italians, they, they may seem the same, but to each other, they know they're very different. Right. And, um, and, and they've been sort of having a, um, a struggle for who's on top in Montreal, in the Montreal Mafia, for decades now. And... Sometimes it's the Calabrians on top, and sometimes it's been the Sicilians. For many years now, it's been the Sicilians under Vito Rizzuto, and now he's not here. The Calabrians are ready to take charge again, it seems. Right. And, and I mean, the Sicilian Mafia, as we know it, is, is much more well-known, and, and part of that is, you know, culture, movies, etc. Exactly. But, but also part of it is how they operate. It seems the, the Calabrian Mafia, they seem much more committed to... Uh, staying out of the limelight, right? There seems to be, you know, that they operate in a different way. Is that fair to say? Um, yeah, I, I, it's certainly the the Cosa Nostra, as we, we know it, uh, from The Godfather, really put them, the Sicilian Mafia, on the map for sure. And and while everyone focused on them, uh, that uh, the Calabrians seemed, the Andrangheta, as the organization's called, seemed quite capable, quite happy to... Uh, to let the attention fall elsewhere while they quietly built an absolutely awesome global organized crime network. Um, they, they now, the authorities in, in, in three continents say it's very clear that the Andangata, uh is, is, is much wealthier and more powerful uh, than the, the, the Cosa Right, and that hasn't been the case previously in Montreal, that in fact, you know, Rizzuto and, and the Sicilian Mafia had, had pretty much wiped up the competition, but that that's definitely changed now, hasn't it? Yeah, so they came to power, um, the Rizzuto clan, the organization, the criminal organization, led by the Rizzutos. Uh, first it was Niccolo Rizzuto, Vito's father, and then later Vito inherited it. Uh, they came to power by basically... Uh, wiping out uh, the leadership of the Calabrians that were in charge of Montreal in, in the 50s, 40s and 50s, um, 60s, uh, throughout that period. Uh, the Sicilians came out on top in the uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. And ever since then, Vito Rizzuto's been, uh, been a, he was an extremely competent and adept uh, boss. You know, it, he was he was different than, than people we've seen in the past. Um, he was he was a manager. Uh, he was you know he was a businessman. He spoke multiple languages. He, he dressed well. I mean, he, if he wasn't if he wasn't a mobster, he would have been a fantastic uh, and a legitimate businessman. But he really built an awesome organization, probably the most powerful criminal organization Canada is ever going to see. Um, and when he was in charge, no one could complain too heavy, too harshly. Right? He was insurmountable, and people um, just um, stayed in line. And that's partly because out of fear, but also because his operation was so good and so smooth that everyone profited. So even though they weren't too keen on uh, 
on the, the personality of the boss. He was a moneymaker for them, so people kept quiet. Things started to get a little rocky once uh, uh, Zito's uh, hegemony on power started to, to fall apart. He, he, he was sent to prison in the United States in 2009. Um, that gave people, uh, you know, the proverbial when the cat's away. Um, people started to try and fight the, the bosses um, back then. Some very, very close people to uh, Davido Rosita was killed, his father and his eldest son. And then he gets uh, out of prison, he comes back, and the, and, and, the, and the war goes the other way. Vito's revenge comes. And there's another wave of violence in Montreal from you know, 2012, 2013. Uh, but then uh, Vito died of cancer uh, in 2013, and, uh, and it's pretty much all bets were off then. Uh, the tide really turned. It, it's kind of remarkable. You know, yeah, you, your listeners, when they, when they think of these old business empires and... and um, the, the guy who built it up uh, dies and he leaves it to his children and they and you can't quite figure out why, you know, Eaton's fell apart or some other big company fell yeah. apart. Well, that happens in the underworld too. For some reason, the next generation just couldn't keep it together. It's interesting because, you know, as you say, when, when people are making money, there's there's relative peace. So maybe some of this violence speaks to some some desperation. But there's also a, a power void, I guess, then to be filled. So what seems to be the big driving factor right now? Well, when no one is um, – well, the best way to work, look at it is this way. If an underworld is very quiet, that means it's very successful. Uh, when things are get, get messy and loud, it's because they're getting desperate. Um, so what we, ha- what we have in, in, in today's environment is that the, in order to take control, just like the Rizzuto clan did you know, in the 80s, you have to be aggressive and violent, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's always the, the, the underdog that, that has to be the aggressor. And, uh, and, and so in this case... What happens then is to maintain or to achieve control, you have to prove to the underworld, to the street, that you have the parts. So you have to get rid of the, you have to eliminate the, uh, the opposition, but you also have to gain reputation. It's not just about getting rid of the boss. You have to be, have the underworld accept a new boss. And that's the two parts that are, are, are really at play in Montreal. And that's why the violence that used to be, mafia violence that used to be very discreet, mm-hmm. um, very targeted, uh, very quote-unquote professional, that's why we're now seeing these messy, public, desperate shootings. Because they have to try and regain control or take control. And that leads to desperation. What is it about Montreal? I mean, there's the ports, obviously. I mean, Montreal's a big yeah. city. There's a relative proximity to New York. But, but otherwise, yeah. I mean, why, why, is, why Montreal? Well, I mean, you, you, you named the, the, the main reason why it started there. Um, the, the, the New York uh, is, is basically through Montreal into Canada was sort of seen as the soft underbelly of America. Uh, and in the early days of the drug trade, um, in the international uh, drug trafficking, um, the Port of Montreal and the gangsters in Montreal were early adopters and leaders of that. So 
Montreal became the place. An Italian investigator said to me that uh, that Montreal was the lock that uh, was the key that unlocked America, um, and, and and so that that was why it was such a you know an important place. You know, we're talking in the fifties, um, but once it is the place, then it becomes where the mafia uh, professionalized, where it uh, specialized, where it is no longer fighting for survival or for power. It can just concentrate on making money. Whereas everywhere else, they're still in those periodic squabbles of, of shootings and, 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 you know, and double crosses. There were no double crosses in Montreal at the time because it just seemed unthinkable. So where's all of this going now? I mean, there's, there, there seems to be, and I guess police haven't fully established a connection between these these hits or attempted hits, but it certainly seems like there's a connection or maybe one's retaliation for the others. So, I mean, is this far from over? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing with uh, with, with, with underworld violence is it often becomes the, the proverbial tit for tat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the police... Uh, you know, refer to it as, you know, settling of accounts. An organization has to be feared. And if you, if you, take, if you take a hit without dishing one back, that is seen as weakness. And someone, someone else might be then emboldened to hit you too. And, and so it's a cycle. The cops call it a self-cleaning oven, rather sardonically and mm-hmm. cynically, because um, we're talking that, you know, lives are at stake. And the problem I think Montrealers are realizing now is that there used to be this a different sense of mafia violence compared to, say, street gang violence or biker violence, which they knew very well from the biker wars. But, but once the mafia has become unstuck, as it has, um, they're, they're finding that they, there's very little difference. They, they, they can't see the same sort of difference. Uh, between the mafia and the street gang and the bikers. It's it's no longer the discreet professional violence that used to go unworried because it it was unlikely to affect people, you know, the, the it wasn't public. Right. There wasn't uh, wild like like so it wasn't like we're seeing right now where Leonardo Rizzuto was driving on a very busy highway in in, in just north of Montreal, uh uh, in rush hour traffic when, you know, there's two Porsches on the road and one pulls up beside him and starts wildly shooting at him. I mean, bullets could have gone anywhere. The, the car itself could have, it's a miracle that it didn't, uh, you know, uh, uh, crash into others. Um, you know, the, 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 the attack that followed was, was a sniper attack. Now, that's obviously a much more targeted, but it was broad daylight, and, you know, outside a busy gym in a plaza. Um, you mentioned the uh, woman that was uh, shot in the parking lot. I mean, she was attacked while she was still in her car. Her, her car kept running, and it crashed into a, to a salon in, 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 in a shopping area. So these are the type of activities that could easily have resulted in uh, innocence or, uh, as they like to say, civilian death. Um, uh, and that, those are the ones that people really worry about. Yeah, indeed. Well, we'll see where it all goes from here. Your latest is mentioned up at nationalpost.com. Adrian, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate your interest, Rob. Thank you. All the best. Take care. There you go. That's uh, veteran uh, journalist and author Adrian Humphreys, reporter at the National Post, nationalpost.com, his latest on Montreal's mob wars, uh, and his book, The Sixth Family, 
on uh, Vito Rizzuto and the Rizzuto crime family. Uh, yeah, maybe not as famous as, you know, say, uh, the John Ghanis of the world, but uh, Vito Rizzuto was uh, very powerful uh, mob leader of Montreal. In fact, had some pretty deep New York connections, including his involvement in a pretty famous gangland hit back in 1981 of three New York capos. And this was uh, a triple hit that was uh, included in the film Donnie Brasco. Now, Vito Rizzuto was uh, one of the many burst out of a closet uh, to carry up the executions anyway. So, yeah, he's quite a story, uh, the late Vito Rizzuto. And with him gone, there is that power void. And so it's become very messy and public as these rival factions try to fill that void. But no, it's no longer, you know, the hit in a basement where it's someone popping out of the closet. It's in rush hour on a highway, gunshots being exchanged. And yeah, maybe it's only a matter of time before innocents get caught up in all of that. Certainly one minister we've been talking a lot about who has definitely been besieged is Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez, who's overseeing what for now is a mess. The former Bill C-18, now the Online News Act. So we'll see if Pablo Rodriguez remains in cabinet, but for now it's his job to try to salvage this. Now speaking of Rodriguez, and for that matter speaking of the CBC, as the government attempts to, to fix this mess... It's becoming increasingly clear that maybe the government just needs to go back to the drawing board. And our next guest, who's been watching all of this very closely, says there needs to be a lot more of a focus on the CBC, changing the CBC's mandate, making some significant changes, especially when it comes to advertising. Because for as much as the government says it wants to help the media industry in this country, uh, the fact is, the current structure of the CBC is undermining it, particularly when it comes to advertising. So joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Peter Menzies, who's a national newspaper award-winning journalist, a former editor-in-chief of the Calgary Herald, former vice chair of the CRTC, and currently a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Peter, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, happy to be here. It's always a pleasure, Rob. First of all, with regard to where things stand on C-18, and it's becoming, I think, as I say, increasingly clear that this is a real mess that the government has on its hands or a real corner that they painted themselves into. What's your assessment of where we're at, first of all? Well, I think where we're at is uh, a deadlock. I don't think Google is satisfied that the government can make the changes it requires for this to be acceptable through the regulations. And as it stands, uh, Meta, which is Facebook and Instagram, they have basically left the station and are heading down the road. They want nothing to do with this, and um, only a legislative change would likely make them change their mind, and it might even be too late for them. So no uh, news links will be carried on Facebook or Instagram, and as it stands, it's looking increasingly likely that uh, if you type CHQR into a Google uh, search engine, um, you're not going to get a result. Yeah. I mean, related to that, the, the position that the minister has uh, staked out here, Pablo Rodriguez, uh, you know, insisting that everything's going to be fine, insisting that this is just a, a bluff on, on Meta's part and, and to some extent Google's part. He's been very intransigent here, it seems. What's your assessment of how he's handled this? Uh, he's handled it extremely poorly uh, right from the very beginning. I was speaking to a source last week who was telling me 
that a year ago he to uh, and this is not a guy who works for big tech just to be clear yeah um you know to to create a fund that would assist journalists and that sort of stuff that would be a better way and at the time the uh, the response he got back from folks with inside heritage was that no they really wanted to bring big tech to to its knees right they they really wanted to make the toughest thing possible and they got one the problem with it is they are losing mm-hmm as it pertains to the CBC, and we'll get into the whole, you know, situation around the CBC, is, is it the government's intent that the CBC would also benefit from these uh, arrangements with Meta or with Google? Does the government intend for the CBC to capture some of that? Oh, absolutely. Um, from the uh, estimates done by the Parliamentary Budget Officer last fall on how this would break down, because the way Bill C-18 is written, it, you sort of get paid on a per-links basis. And right now, because of its national reach and other things, uh, um, CBC is the most accessed website in the country by quite by a long shot. So the way it's set up right now, even though this was started by newspapers looking for money, all the broadcasters got in. So the parliamentary budget officer predicted that 75 percent of the money would go to broadcasters and the largest single portion of that would go to the CBC, followed by Bell. Wow. Um, neither the CBC or Bell are at risk of uh, um, not existing. Bell made $10 billion last year, and the CBC has stable funding. So, yeah, it's kind of, it's, uh, that, that's where it stands. CBC is the big winner. Well, they are, and, and they, they enjoy some structural advantages. And it appears through all of this, the government hasn't shown any interest in addressing any of that or even really examining the, the mandate of the CBC. Why, why do you think that is? <laughs> I really don't know because, you know, like what I've been trying to get at is is no single fund is going to do this. No matter how much money you end up squeezing out of Google and Facebook, they're not going to give you, you know, you're going to get probably at most a couple hundred million bucks, even if even if they fold, um, which spread across the entire news industry in Canada is really not going to make that much difference in terms of addressing some of the fundamental structural issues. And one of the big fundamental structural issues is that the government funds the CBC with $1.2 billion a year. And, you know, I don't really have any problem with that or even a little bit more funding for a public broadcaster. But the CBC isn't a pure play public broadcaster. Right. Uh, on radio, it doesn't sell advertising. Uh, it competes for audiences, but it doesn't compete for dollars. So most of those uh, operators, you know, they're okay with that as long as it's not costing them money. On television, it competes for dollars. And uh, in recent years, when it moved into into online in a very big way and basically became an online newspaper, it's the largest single competitor. One of the publishers called it an Uber predator. And it... Uh, uh, sells cheaper than the other guys would like to sell their ads for, too, from what I hear. Imagine that in any other business, though, right? Imagine you're running a your housing developer or you're, you're, you're running a restaurant, right? And your competition, your biggest competitor, is subsidized by the government, right, with your tax dollars. Yeah. None of that makes sense. No, it doesn't. And yeah, that, that's the, the exact reality here. So when it comes to the, the advertising side, I mean, it seems like it would be a pretty simple change. The model exists on radio. Is that the model that should apply to, to TV and digital for the CBC? Yeah, to me, it's the same as the BBC in, in Britain. Mm-hmm. They, uh, 
collect no revenue from uh, domestic advertising. If you access the BBC website from right now, you'll see ads. So they can, uh, but that's because you're looking at it from Canada. But domestically, they do not compete with uh, the United Kingdom's commercial broadcasters. Um, and they just do what they do as a, as a public broadcaster. They're able to serve underserved communities. They're able to serve remote areas like the north. They're able to do it in two languages at least and more languages up north. And all of that's fine. That's what good public broadcasters do. And most countries have one of that stature. It's just the idea that it is actually, and I've heard the CBC describe itself this way in public hearings, a publicly funded commercial broadcaster. It's either it now. You need yeah. it, either a public broadcaster or you should be a commercial broadcaster. This hybrid is really, you know, it was all okay when everybody was making lots of money. It wasn't that big a problem. I mean, it wasn't okay, but you didn't hear the complaints. But now that money's really tight in the news industry, people are really taking a hard look at this. And you're never going to have a healthy news industry in Canada as long as you have a preferred government provider uh, competing for advertising. Well, we sort of look at it through the lens then of the CBC filling gaps or the CBC getting out of the way of, of private media. Uh, you know, your piece touches on another interesting aspect where maybe the CBC could actually support uh, journalism in Canada to, to maybe not quite be like a newswire service, but uh, share content, find other ways of, of filling some of those gaps. How, how could that whole relationship change? Oh, it would change the relationship a lot. I mean, my suggestion there is that, um, you know, Basically, you could you could do this very quickly. The, the current government could do this very quickly and be consistent with its own view of the world by getting rid of advertising for CBC, replacing the lost revenue from advertising, you know, net out the cost savings of not having a sales department, etc. And away you go, uh, just with additional funding. But then make sure that all of CBC's news content becomes available, you know, with, with credit. Mm-hmm. Um, to any other news organization in the country, or any other organization for that matter, because these, this is this is this is a, an asset produced with public money, and for some of the smaller, you know, little newspapers here and there, I don't know, I'll pick one. I always pick out the Alaska Highway News, or some, something like that. That can make a big difference. They mm-hmm. can have a lot of uh, their bases covered in terms of uh, you know being able being a source for provincial and national news. Um, and, uh, and 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 being able to focus what resources they have on local news. CBC could go from being uh, an Uber predator to an Uber provider. Right. So I think there's some some real opportunities here where, look, the CBC can still enjoy an important role in this nation as the public broadcaster. But if the government, which professes to be interesting, uh, interested in trying to save journalism or broadly speaking in the private sector, uh, this seems like an obvious avenue of, of pursuit. But maybe it's I, I don't know. Are, are they afraid of rocking the boat? Do they feel as though the CBC is almost too cherished that we can't look at the mandate or look at these issues? It, it's I, I'm not yeah, sure what's I, holding I, us back. I don't know. I'll tell you one thing with this government, with the Department of Heritage, with Minister Pablo Rodriguez there, everything they do, and maybe maybe this is what you'd expect from a Department of Heritage, but everything they do seems seems to be these days about preserving the status quo. Yeah. 
right? Or moving us back. Bill C-11, the Streaming Act, is sort of putting the CRTC in charge of the Internet as if it was cable or over-the-air television and that sort of stuff. Bill C-18, trying to to prop up uh, flagging daily newspapers, some of which have been, I mean, seriously, they've been dead for years, but they're just still walking around like zombies, right? Rather than focusing on the future, we're going through a disruptive time here. We need innovators, we need entrepreneurs, we need imaginative thinking, and we need change, right? And they, you know, for progressive liberals, these guys are the most conservative uh, policymakers I can recall. We'll see where it all goes from here. In the meantime, as mentioned, your latest, it's up at theglobeandmail.com. Much more at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Peter, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Thanks so much for your interest, as always, Rob, and have a great day. Yeah, you as well. There you go. That's uh, Peter Menzies, uh, senior fellow of the Fraser Institute, or rather the McDonald Laurier Institute, uh, former vice chair at the CRTC. So his thoughts on maybe how the CBC's role can and should change and how that could actually be good for journalism in this country. Listen, we got a lot of ground to cover on the program here this afternoon, but I want to start today with a conversation around this Calgary clinic that's getting a lot of attention, not just here in Calgary or in Alberta. This is kind of making national headlines, although this kind of thing isn't that new, I guess. You know, certainly coming out of the election and the sensitivity about the future of health care or the idea of paying for service or paying to see a doctor, it's uh, shining an extra spotlight on this. So what's happening here is a, a Calgary clinic, the Marta Loop Medical Clinic, sent a letter to its patients that informs them that as of August 1st, the clinic is going to be membership based, a membership based service, and there will be annual fees. for a family, $2,200 for an individual. So for that fee, you would get reduced wait times to see a doctor, extended appointments if necessary. You get at-home tests, collaborative care from the health team, all of these kinds of things. Now, the uh, clinic also says they will keep one day open per week for patients who were not signed up for the membership. So they will still see patients on a more typical or, or regular basis. But this does seem like the the idea of paying to see a family doctor, paying for access to health care. So how do we view this? And does the system allow this? Do we need to, to change anything? What are the rules around this sort of thing? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts here this afternoon uh, on all this, very pleased to welcome in the program uh, Dr. Fiona Clement, a professor who specializes in health policy in the Department of Community Health Sciences at the University of Calgary. Dr. Clement, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. I'm excited to be joining you. Well, we appreciate you joining us here. And I think, like I say, this is getting a lot of people's attention. But I, I, I do understand when we have seen models like this before. Like, is, is this really new or how new is this? It's, it's not new. So the first clinic in Calgary opened in, I think, 2008. So this is old ground for us. And indeed, we're not the only province that has these kinds of models. Uh, there's these kinds of clinics uh, across the country. So nothing new here, really. Now, the idea of of paying out of pocket for what would otherwise be insured services, like seeing a family doctor, that's supposed to be something that's not allowed under the Canada Health Act. But are are there ways around this? Like, what does this clinic or other clinics 
doing through these membership fees and the services they're offering that maybe get around some of those rules? Mm-hmm. Well, well, you nailed it, Rob. Like, you are not allowed under the Canada Health Act to charge for necessary medical services. But you opened with it in your in your remarks. That's not what this clinic is charging for, right? They're technically charging for um, shorter wait times to see the doctor, um, extra care around um, how that experience might go, um, sort of guided navigation to make sure your referrals are happening, um, at-home tests as opposed to going to the lab. And those are technically not seeing a doctor. Um, so that's where these clinics are able to sort of skirt around the edges and I think you know in in my own opinion not in the spirit of the Canada Health Act but technically not in violation because they're not actually charging for a medical service itself. Right and so they are still seeing patients they are still going to have one day a week where Mm -hmm. they are still seeing patients so on that side I guess they can say they are they are living up to that obligation if that's what it is they are seeing patients they're not charging those patients mm-hmm. they're just not doing it as much and i guess you know doctors can decide i guess whether it's one day a week or five days a week or something in between how often they see patients that's right that's right and important to note that a physician does have a duty of care to patients that they already see so announcing that they're moving to a membership model is step one they then have to give patients a reasonable amount of time about a year to find a new family doctor if they want to transition their care out of the clinic so just you know there is it's not like they can decide one day they want to have a membership fee and, and all of the patients that they're seeing that either can't or choose not to pay this will be, you know, without a doctor tomorrow. There is a duty of care to help patients transition to other, other physicians as well. I mean, it, it seems maybe obvious, but I don't know. I mean, I would imagine this this is a revenue generator. Would this mean, you know, that the doctors are collecting more? Because I don't imagine they're they're billing Alberta Health for some of these services that people are paying for. But how does this affect, you know, what doctors themselves are earning or what their offices are generating? Yeah, so, I mean, of, of course it's, you know, more income coming into the clinic. Um, I think the doctors would say that, you know, they, they take pride in the care that they offer patients and that the kind of care that they want to offer patients is such that, you know, I can see you when you're sick within a reasonable timeline, that I can help you navigate the healthcare system, that I can provide care at home for you when, when you need it. But of course, there's a, there's a real cost to all of those kinds of services. And so I think from the doctor's perspective, that's really what this membership fee represents is that for me to engage in the kind of care that I really take pride in offering my patients, I can't do that with the the funding that I get from the government, and so I, I do need another revenue source. So this doesn't necessarily mean they're they're withdrawing from from the public health system, then, as we know. No, absolutely not. So all so again, getting back to the murkiness of this. So the the visit, the actual physician time with the patient, will continue to be paid by Alberta Health. Again, that's not what the membership fee is charging for. Um, right. So it is um, a very murky kind of area of of Canadian health policy and and law. Actually, yep. Right. And again, I mean, the Canada Health Act is federal legislation, but I mean, that's just kind of that. That means what funding to provinces is kind of contingent on. So Mm -hmm. even violating the Canada Health Act, I I don't know that that necessarily comes with any penalties. I mean, it could jeopardize federal funding to Alberta, but maybe this doesn't technically violate the Canada Health Act. So where does Alberta have some jurisdiction in, in laying out some of these rules? 
Yeah, so I mean, the, I think the government could definitely um, introduce some additional legislation um, that uh, banned membership-type clinics. Um, that would be a bold move, so it'd be interesting to see if that happened. I think the federal government could also offer more clarity around what exactly is meant by the language in the Canada Health Act of you know extra billing and user fees, because one could imagine that through some interpretations, um, perhaps a user fee is equivalent to a membership, perhaps, who knows. Um, but so I think we could look both to the federal government for some more clarity around what their language means exactly, and then it would really be up to the province to legislate this in a different way if they wanted to stop these membership clinics um, from popping up. Right, and I mean the statement we got from Alberta Health is that they're they're keeping an eye on this situation, mm-hmm. which seems uh, like a pretty passive response. So it doesn't appear as though they're prepared to intervene at this point. I mean, at what what point might the province need to? There's already a a, a problem, maybe even a crisis. You got to say in Alberta, where a lot of people don't have access to to a family doctor. If we see more of this sort of thing, I would imagine that that could exacerbate that issue. So absolutely, primary care reform and policy action is required. I mean, as you said. There are many Albertans who are struggling to find a family doctor, which means they're not getting the primary care that they need, which is a cornerstone of you know health and well-being. So there's no doubt in my mind that the government needs to take some some steps and do some reform in primary care. Whether they choose to tackle this particular issue or not, uh, we'll have to wait and see. Indeed, we will. Well, we appreciate your insight on all of this. Thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon, Dr. Clement. Thank you, Rob. All the best. Uh, That's uh, Dr. Fiona Clement, uh, professor specializing in health policy, the Department of Community Health Sciences, University of Calgary. So commenting on this unusual but not unprecedented situation. So, yeah, I would imagine, you know, for patients at this clinic to get that kind of a, a, well, I guess it was an email, not a letter, uh, that would be kind of shocking. That's not the kind of thing you would typically have to budget for. So you're, you know, say you've got, uh, you know, a spouse and, and kids for a family, that's $4,800. So the idea that all of a sudden you'd have to find that kind of money to keep going to this clinic or keep seeing this doctor, I don't know, that would be kind of a bitter pill to swallow, wouldn't it? Now, I mean, this clinic can still argue, well, hey, we are still going to see patients who aren't members. You know, you, you, you don't have to join and you can still be a patient here. But if they're only seeing those patients one day a week, that's certainly going to have a big impact when it comes to access. Like if you phone to make an appointment, how far down the road are you actually going to get in to see somebody? So I would imagine if if people are willing to pay this fee, they're probably going to be looking elsewhere for a family doctor. But I mean, you know, we're in a situation right now where it's kind of like, well, good luck with that. Because a lot of Albertans already having trouble finding a family doctor. And if you've got now patients who have been turned away from clinics like this, uh, and now they're also looking for family doctors, well, you know, that's just more people searching without really adding any more due doctors to the equation. On the other hand, though, I mean, clearly clinics wouldn't do this if there wasn't some benefit from it. Like, obviously, people are willing to pay this. So is this something you think would be of good value uh, to pay $2,200 as an individual, $4,800 as a family, to have that kind of access, those kinds of features uh, from from being a part of a, a program like this? And I mean, is, is this kind of where healthcare is going? 
you know, I look, I know the NDP are, are kind of saying on the political side, yeah, well, we told you so. You know, we were the ones who were telling you during the election that Daniel Smith was going to have you paying out of pocket to see a family doctor, and here we go. I mean, this kind of thing's been around before Daniel Smith was around as premier, uh, but it does play into that. And we've got a cabinet shuffle looming tomorrow. It'll be interesting to see if uh, we still have the same environment minister after tomorrow. Certainly Stephen Gibault uh, has had to head up some pretty significant initiatives from the federal government, uh, some of which have not gone over well here in Alberta, as you well know. Uh, the one yesterday uh, Stephen Gibault announced, I think we're all kind of waiting to see, well, what exactly does this mean? And we've heard a lot of talk over the years about uh, so-called fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, and the argument from the environmental side being that if we're going to phase out fossil fuels eventually, or try to make alternative green energy more competitive, we need to stop subsidizing the development of fossil fuels. But to what extent do we uh, incentivize or subsidize fossil fuel development? So even the idea of a subsidy is a little bit subjective. On top of that, Ottawa's plan announced yesterday uh, intends to phase out what it calls inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. So it was kind of a, a, a framework or guidelines announced yesterday. So the, the meat of all of this or the specifics yet to come here. So it doesn't cut off any federal funding for fossil fuel projects uh, because if they support... Uh, an environmental initiative, you know, like carbon capture, for example, then that would still be okay. So I think for now, you know, industry is just kind of waiting and seeing what this all means. Now, joining us uh, for some thoughts on, on that very question, what this might all mean, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Richard Masson, Executive Fellow with the University of Calgary School of Public Policy and Chair of the World Petroleum Council here in Canada. Uh, Richard, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be here, Rob. We kind of knew this was coming, but uh, still, do we know any more today than we did a few days ago about what the government's intentions are here? Well, I think we do know some more because what they really said was we're going to look at the go-forward programs that we have, and we're going to continue to use tax measures, uh, you know, potential subsidies for things that reduce the greenhouse gas impact of oil and gas production. And that's okay. That's not an inefficient fossil fuel subsidy and they said they reviewed 139 different programs they didn't specifically say any were going to be cut um, and they said that some things had kind of phased out or petered out over time over the last few years and it kind of left the impression that the, the tax measures that are in place that generally apply not only to oil and gas but to mining and other industries are all fine they're not going to be affected and really what the government is saying is we don't intend to subsidize new production going forward, but we can still um, provide government funding through the tax system or other, other means for things that impact climate change and our national objectives. Okay, so something like supporting carbon capture, developing that technology, that, that would s still be allowed. I mean, that would still be permitted then under these, these regulations. Exactly, and the idea is it's expensive to do this. Carbon capture is capital-intensive. Uh, it costs money to, you know, get the pressure to, to liquefy the CO2 and then pump it to a place where you can put it in the ground and sequester it and monitor it. And, and there's no revenue that comes from it. So in order to get companies to take on carbon capture, 
we need to have a framework in place that allows those investment dollars to find at least some kind of a return. And that includes things like investment tax credits that the federal government's announced the last couple of years. And this framework that they announced yesterday says, that's okay, that's not going to be considered a subsidy. Okay, so what is? Like, what what is it that we need to address here? I mean, what's an example of a subsidy or an inefficient subsidy as the government sees it? This is where it gets kind of complicated and, and very technical because the environmental groups and some policy think tanks like to throw a lot of things in the basket and say, you're giving money to the oil and gas sector, and therefore that's a subsidy and you should cut it out. So one prime example is the Trans Mountain Expansion. The the pipeline was going to be developed privately by Kinder Morgan. It had shippers who were going to pay the cost of that. It was a deal that was all in place years ago. Then Kinder Morgan got so nervous with the the disruptions, the regulatory issues, the legal issues that they were they were backing out. The federal government bought it. And since then, they've had to put a lot of federal money into it to get it completed. So the environmental side would say, well, that's a federal subsidy. It's not a subsidy in the sense of it's helping the industry. It's really the federal government bought a pipeline from a commercial entity under commercial terms, and the costs have gone up. And so it's cost them more. So, so these are questions about how do you define things? Um, it's, it's difficult to point to actual subsidies that the federal government and even um, the environmental side agree on because their definitions are quite different. You know, some things like export guarantees, if you're going to export oil and gas equipment to another country, um, Export Development Canada does that for all industries. Uh, it's, it's not a subsidy to the oil and gas sector. However, some environmental people say, well, it is because it's money that's going to the oil and gas sector. Therefore, it's a subsidy to oil and gas. These are the kind of debates that have been going on for years now. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the point about Trans Mountain, I guess it'll kind of be a moot point if the indeed the pipeline is finished, uh, you know, later this year or next year and, and then sold off. I, I can't imagine a situation down the road where the government would do that again anyway. So, yeah, I mean, the environmentalists might have seen that as a subsidy. They don't like that decision, but that's that's done. And by the time all of this goes into force, it'll all be in, in the past, won't it? That's pretty much what the minister said when he was doing his press conferences. They really haven't seen demand for new subsidy programs for oil and gas development or coal. I always talk about oil and gas. but And so he didn't see that there was anything really being affected by this. Um, go forward, there was no plans for that kind of subsidy program. Really what the industry wants to do is work with the federal and provincial government to put in place a framework to allow for carbon capture and storage and other technologies to be implemented to reduce the greenhouse gas impacts of our existing production. Right. So, I mean, does this maybe then give some further clarity? Because I think, and you hinted at it, you know, some of the, the investments that are going to be necessary, they want to make sure that there's some certainty around all of this going forward. Does this maybe provide that? It helps. It's a step in the right direction. So, you know, there's uh, the Pathways Alliance, which is trying to build the carbon capture in the oil sands and a big pipeline from Fort McMurray down to Cold Lake to sequester it. I heard uh, interview this week that said they want to actually start ordering pipe this fall, and they need clarity around government programs. They still, this isn't going to clarify everything, but it's one more step towards providing the clarity that's needed. That says, yeah, the investment tax credits that that are in the tax system are not going to be changed because you know they're an inefficient fossil fuel subsidy. Rather, they're considered exempt from that kind of discussion. 
they're really about an environmental objective. Right, and and about the fears that this could be a springboard to to more a more punitive approach to to oil and gas development, maybe maybe on the tax side or in some other way, does that seem unfounded at this point? If they were going to make a big announcement, you would expect them to do it at the time. So they didn't really say anything about that in the questioning I saw of the, of the minister's subsequent follow-ups. He didn't say things like that. So it yeah. seems at this point that maybe that uh, door has been closed. And really, we're, we're looking forward. I think the federal government is really recognizing that they need the industry to work with them in order to achieve Canada's climate objectives. And industry knows that their boards of directors and shareholders are really keen on seeing um, lower carbon emissions from production. And so there's a, there's a lot of alignment. You know, net zero by 2050 is a common goal. And the question is, how do we get started on implementing that and how quickly can we go? There's a bit of debate over that. But in general, everybody's going in the right direction. And this is part of uh, making sure there's clarity around that. All right. We'll see where this all goes from here. Richard, appreciate your insight uh, on all of this. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Anytime, Rob. Thanks. All the best. Take care. There you go. That's uh, Richard Masson, executive fellow at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy, chair of the World Petroleum Council in Canada. So uh, still a need to fill in some of the blanks here, but maybe this isn't anything to, to be too worried about. That seems to be the uh, the response uh, from industry, sort of cautious optimism. Uh, the uh, Pathways Alliance uh, saying they were pleased that this recognizes the importance of having public-private partnerships and trying to meet some of these climate targets. Uh, the uh, Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers uh, says Ottawa needs to move swiftly to provide Canadian oil and natural gas producers with policy and regulatory certainty to expand the development and the deployment of emissions reduction technologies and, and hoping that this is, you know, the, the springboard to that. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.